Furthermore, he added, as a consequence of a 1989 civil death statute in the Penal Code, the New York DOC regarded all writing produced by state prisoners as state property, just as a chair assembled in the woodshop belonged to the state. But it is not to the letter of the law that I appeal, rather its spirit, its cri de coeur, its flavor savor. I worry that I've gone thoroughly off the rails, as it were, in my apologia. I've begun paging through the archives. It was Wilfred's idea to keep a set on a beautiful cherrywood bookshelf here in the media center, and the nostalgia brings a tear to my eye, I don't mind telling you. The closer we come to the end, the warmer the embrace of the past, and the greater the temptation to romanticize and misrepresent. We are inevitably nostalgic for our youth, though perhaps that's imprecise. Rather, it is our potential we miss, potential unfulfilled or fulfilled by the wrong choices. Here I must take solace. Regrets, I have none. Or rather, I regret not living to see the publication of those unfulfilled holding pens. Volume 1, Issue 14, Feelings. Volume 1, Issue 15, Kiwi Watermelon. The oversized fifth anniversary volume with Rizzoli. The page-a-day calendar with Andrews McMeal. Ah! Volume 1, Issue 7, The Patriarchy. A stunning issue. Time has only burnished its inner verities. A.F. Aguilar's Cochina Muy Caliente, whose stanzas dance across the lips of Hispanic matriarchs everywhere, whose opening couplet is the bumper sticker of Cancun pedicabs, usurping the old standby, how's my driving, call 1-800-FUCK-OFF, and whose repeating line, Cochina, Cochina, Donde Esta El Viento, has become a call-and-response standard in the Sonoran EDM scene. Thousands of ravers chanting, Viento, on the breakdown with a pantomime kiss to the DJ. The poem is well on its way to folk myth status. And Volume 1, Issue 2, Geographies. Such an improvement on our debut. This is where we really came into our own, accepting Lopez's lacrimose contribution. Otherwise, it's strong front-to-back, courtesy of a design rethink executed by Pentagram pro bono. Peter Beirut said they didn't change the holding pen so much as Allow it to be what it was always meant to be. I will not discuss Volume 1, Issue 9, Heritage. If WCBS's cameras can zoom in, it appears as though, yes, it's Miller, one of the screws from E-Block. He's made a break for it through the West Lawn. His uniform has been rent to rags, exposing numerous cuts and bruises. He's cradling his right arm. Still, he should be happy to be alive. He must have been close to Times Square when this all started. Miller's one of the good ones, or at least not one of the bad ones, though not without his quirks. I remember it was my second week inside. I shuffled by the E-block station while he complained to another screw about pulling monitor duty, a six-hour shift in front of a bank of surveillance feeds, squinting to see if the grainy shapes cohere into activity that might be considered suspicious. Miller said, Sometimes I imagine the cameras go deeper. They show the bones, the organs. No skin, no tattoos, no eyes. And it's not just them. The COs, too, just these piles of muscles and bones ambling from room to room. I wasn't surprised to hear this. Prison was like a sensory deprivation chamber. In other ways, 
prison was like a monastery, and in other ways, prison wasn't a metaphor for anything. Those first months are the hardest. Don't let anyone fool you. Your body and your mind refuse to adjust to the rhythms and limitations of prison life. First, your bowels will not cooperate. Then they cannot be stopped. You'll write letters to everyone you've ever met. Then you'll have nothing to say. You'll take a morning jog and discover your ankles have shrunken overnight, sending you to the ground three times before you give up. Then a curious thing happens. The days go on. They flatten out and in their accumulation mithridatize you to the poison of time. McNary chalked this up to American resilience. Wilfred called it the awful mutability of man. Still, good to see Miller made it. I suspect many of his colleagues haven't fared so well. It's become quite clammy in here. I must acknowledge the clamminess and the back sweat. I'd never before considered the room temperature of my final day on Earth. Someone has cut the A.C., and looking over the computer monitor and down the hallway, I can see the first clouds of smoke. Still quite thin, the visibility remains more than generous. The sulfurous tinge to the air is stronger, plus the smell of burnt tires, however improbable that may be. If I can hazard a brief expedition into the hallway, perhaps I can suss out just how much time I have left, how much time we have left. Do I dare? Dismantling the barricade of Aeron chairs, footlockers, teacher's desk, and Britannicas might take eight or nine minutes, and less time to rebuild it. Practice. The longer I wait, the more dangerous my expedition becomes. I've returned. I do not exaggerate when I write my esprit de corps for you has magnified in the last fifteen minutes. It has magnified and it has multiplied. I needn't bore you about my desperate reconnoiter, especially when I have so much left to confess and impart in this, the final issue of the holding pen. Suffice to say, the ride proceeds apace. The fires in A and B blocks hindered any escape through central booking, directing the truculent masses into C and D blocks. I can only express my deepest hope for McNary's safety. If there is a Westbrook after today... I will happily accede editorial control to my inamorato. He would make a capable steward of the holding pen too, a new beginning. As I've said, I believe McNary's geist touches every page, every word, every title. Have I mentioned his interest in the etymology of American axioms? Or, to be more specific, his interest in the etymology of American axioms he surmised to have originated with convicts? You can't swing a dead cat in here without blank. There's more than one way to skin a cat. A few others I'm forgetting, in all likelihood similarly feline in content. If you'll forgive a moment of wool gathering, I remember our meet-cute. It happened, as they say, on a Tuesday. I was shuffling down the cafeteria line for PM meal, always a dispiriting endeavor. Nothing says endless routine like passing a twelve-gallon tub of mayonnaise nestled behind the prep trays. In those early days, I remember my foolish optimism regarding the pudding. This was before Wilford informed me its bargain-basement viscosity had been responsible for at least one choking death. As was customary, I kept my head on a swivel, taking everything in, silently chastising everyone's poor back posture, 
row after row of men bent like supplicants. Except for the Muslim brothers, they sit erect with sphincters fully tightened. I felt eyes on me. Mind you, I was still on edge after that first bit with O'Bastard face, still quaking when the shower water hit my face. All to say I could feel the eyes on me before I could see the eyes on me, before I turned around and met them in kind. I was startled to encounter the friendly expression of a man three inches shorter, solidly built, and deeply freckled. He grabbed a quesadilla and said in that cockles-warming idiolect, Come here often? I laughed despite myself, a surprise of a laugh that was more spittle and cough than anything else. McNary laughed too. Then he became serious and motioned to a table, far from the other new fish. I followed, naturally. He set his tray down and said, You're the guy from the city papers, correct? Those midtown widows? I nodded, seeing no need to correct him. The Bernays is technically Upper West Side, and felt, from something in his voice, mildly flattered. And such small hands, too, he said, wrapping his thumb and index finger around my diminutive right wrist. Nobody around us said a word or even acknowledged us. My first intimation of McNary's status. He released my wrist and leaned in. Look. I have an eyelash below my eyelid, right here. Can you get it out? I needn't tell you. The second my services were requested, the old doorman habits returned. I nodded and grasped McNary's head with my right hand, hooking my thumb at his eyelid, gently pushing downward. I've had superlative dexterity as long as I can remember. It even saved my life back in Trinco with the Hilton Hotel's advance man. He paid me handsomely to clear the scrub before principal construction, which meant sweeping for residual LTTE landmines, which meant the softest of soft touches while crawling the expanse between the Nilaveli beachfront and Pulmodai Road. Of course I'm no fool. You can only perform the job for so long before you blow off hand, leg, or face. The prudent man allays his risk while still netting maximum profits. After a week of crawling... I followed my employer's lead and outsourced the labor. A hundred and thirty rupees per mine. My friends were happy to earn the money, and since the work carried a whiff of masculine-slash-humanitarian violence, their raised stature with the nursing school students made for a most appreciated bonus. To return, McNary's eye watered over, and if he blinked, the eyelashes would become too slippery to hold. With these things, you have just one real opportunity. I spotted it at once, floating in a shallow pool between reddened sclera and the thin band of tissue. The world disappeared. With a slow pinch of my left thumb and middle finger, I plucked the errant lash, and before I removed my fingers, I paused. McNary's pupil was directed straight ahead, which is to say, straight ahead at me. He hadn't blinked once. It's an incredible thing how one minute people are strangers and a minute later they are friends. Sometimes they are still strangers even while they are friends, and with lovers it's worse. Sometimes they become strangers again, though this is not necessarily unwelcome. That's how it was with McNary, or rather how it is. Our courtship was brief, an evening or two drinking toilet wine during open call. McNary favored a bracing variety flavored with anise. That'll put lead in your pencil. Now you just need to find someone to write to. 
He told me about his side business in bleaching anuses, integral to his unique position of protected yet apart. I can report it was a professional and hygienic setup, employing an off-brand gel he had smuggled in and would apply with a popsicle stick. McNary was very upfront about the burning. Whenever I inquired about the business, he'd shake his head and reply, I've seen things. So have we all, my brother. So have we all. At the risk of purple prose, let me say in those moments with him I felt an openness beyond geography and beyond limit. I would not think it a breach of privacy to share one of his more endearing traits, considering the circumstances, to record here for posterity. He'd follow his orgasm with an indecorously loud remark, A celebration! said more to himself than anyone else. I don't pretend to know its origins. I do know he was, and is, a true gentleman. He never asked for my version of that night at the Bernays, not once. And lest you think, as I thought, this some unspoken prison code, some two-way street, with McNary I was always learning on my feet, as it were. He volunteered his own story. Robbing an off-track betting spot, fatally shooting a miner. Though he spent the first nineteen years of his life in Jersey City, he rarely visited Manhattan, and McNary thrilled to hear my stories of life on the island. I would run a hand over the musculature in his arms and legs, tell him about, say, the hundreds of immigrant workers buried in the Statue of Liberty's crown, sacrificed during its many restorations. They just fell over and died and the guys behind them took over and worked until they fell over and died, and on and on. The world just consumes us, and the lucky ones are cornmeal for the maw of art and the maw of beauty, dying in the service of something greater than ourselves. Which is not to say it was all wine and roses. I do not wish to give a false impression of our relationship. We argued like any other couple, about communication, about making time for each other, Plus, he harbored suspicions of Betsy from the start. I'd thought it was simple jealousy. Of course, now I realize it was simple deductive reasoning. He'd screw up the courage after hitting the booze, saying I'd gone soft, cunt-blind. Then he would collapse onto his bed slab. He slept with the mattress folded against the wall, said he didn't like to get too comfortable. And I remember once he sighed, Compassion, Jesus Christ, how inefficient. It's exhausting, compassion. We were strong, though. We are strong. And we would make up every time and on special occasions break out the pop rocks. McNary, you taught me so much. With a swell of surabundance in my chest, I dedicate my literary corpus to you. I see my outpouring of feeling has engendered the same in many of you, judging by the upvotes in Reddit's r slash McNary fanfic. I thank all of you for your support, your enthusiasm, and your, how to put it, imagination. It appears as though hashtag Westbrook Riot isn't trending as highly as it was this afternoon. It's to be expected. We're approaching hour five. Even Bollywood films have intermissions. What else is being served at tonight's entertainment buffet? On Fox News, you have Stepdad Rescue's Daughter from Teacher, Tiger Man of Utah video, and Small Town Parade Disaster, video, NSFW. The cornucopia of life in these United States. It's quite beautiful. 
let us never take a single moment for granted. Though it would be opportunistic and distasteful to appropriate this riot for my own purposes, it must be said that people are dying out there and it's important to make the best of it. Yes, that was my hand. I know WBCS camped outside of the media center hoping for such a moment. The glass was cool to the touch, despite the humidity inside. With my arm fully outstretched, I could lay my palm flat against its surface, an almost penitential gesture from which I admit deriving a foreign pleasure, a foreign and childlike pleasure. Let the high-def image of my hand be my final portrait, my synecdochic adieu. The warden had the IMAX webcams disabled. The same hand that pulled the holding pen out of the muse's birth canal and into the light the same hand that slapped the holding pen to beckon its first cry and gauge its respiratory response. A cry, if I may be so bold, that will ring out for decades hence. And more immediately, my hastily scrawled free mumia sign has spread with the visibility of a thousand billboards. Three minutes later, we're once again atop and astride the national conversation. Ah, yes. But for how long? Like everyone... In idle moments I've contemplated my own death, dramatized it in the cinema of my mind. As a teenager, it was a melodramatic image, dying in the arms of my lover in the Gaul fort, my body riddled with bullets. At the Bernays I had plenty of time to envision a new scene, one with the detail and fastidiousness of one of those Bruegels at the Met. I would fall from a great height, seeing the world as the birds do, as our kind was never meant to. I wondered, and do wonder, if I would glean some particular insight before I hit the pavement. I always envisioned an urban setting, something approaching total clarity. Most often I crashed through the roof of an idling taxi, if only for the comic potential of the driver to perfunctorily reply, Where to? You have to give people levity amidst the tragedy. As you have likely suspected, yes, I always chose the Bernays for my launching pad, as it were. That's only natural, and besides, I'm not very creative. Those idle hours at the podium made the transition to Westbrook relatively painless. For four years, I was three West 72nd Street's consummate doorman, the custodian and sentry for a storied address built with Carnegie money in 1928, rehabbed by Halston in 1976 and managed by a Saudi-based holdings company since 2009. While its residents were almost exclusively among the most well-heeled bankers and captains of industry, the Bernays was not without a bit of spice in the stew, as they say. Jersey Kuczynski lived in 9F in the late 1970s, holding afternoon debates in the lobby and carrying on late-night assignations with Ms. Clatton. It said the lobby ashtrays had to be emptied every twenty minutes. Any old fool can be a doorman. I was the greatest doorman, going above and beyond to ensure total comfort for the septuagenarian and octogenarian and, in the case of Ms. Beale's, nonagenarian women of the Bernays. Many of our residents' husbands had fulfilled their actuarial duties in predeceasing these ladies. I quite preferred the widows truth be told. Total comfort meant knowing where to unload the Gristidis bags in every kitchen in every apartment. Total comfort meant remembering which grandchildren Miss Rothschild spoiled and which grandchildren to send away. 
If only I'd known to block that GSSR conscript. Total comfort meant cooing at Ms. DeWitt's purchase of a Givenchy toddler's bib, the same one she'd purchased four days previous, and would again purchase four days hence. Total comfort meant directing Miss Huang's visitors through the maid's door, as her site-specific Richard Sarah barred entrance from the main foyer. Total comfort meant retrieving a battered old TV from the hallway closet in 303 and setting it on the upholstered Louis XIV chair so Ms. Miyake Burns could watch the Price is Right reruns and exhale lusty gutturals at Bob Barker's face. She reserved impotent mues for the contestants who overbid on common household items like combination washer-dryer units and vacuum cleaners with attachments for hard-to-reach places. Ms. Miyake Burns once confided she had frequent nightmares about appearing on the show and overbidding on herself. She was both contestant and product, speculating wildly and vociferous suggestions from the audience. Every weekday morning, I'd return at 9.30 to hoist the TV back into the closet. Some of the other doormen, particularly James on second shift, they avoided Ms. Miyake Burns whenever possible. She was curt, it must be said, but I believe it was her past that put everyone on edge. She was the rare self-made widow in the Bernays, or anywhere really, alone at forty after an embolism blossomed in her husband's skull one day at a trading desk. My white-collar readers likely recognize the name, M.B. Holdings. Ms. Miyake Burns was the eponymous head of the organization, something of a pioneer for creating a futures market in liberal outrage. Her oft-quoted line, I give Goldman a reason to expense their time's subscription. Her prescient decision to divorce it from the major exchanges meant she could incorporate 501c3 nonprofits, which later fueled a good chunk of activity and fees. As you can imagine, Ms. Miyake Burns frequently nudged the Bernays staff for ideas, truffle-hunting through the scandals of the day for the revelations with real staying power. I quite enjoyed it, though James called it financially vampiric, the obverse to that Joe Kennedy tale of exiting the market after receiving stock tips from shoeshine boys. I remember the spring evening she returned from a Bloomberg gala, award in hand, she invited me up to watch TV with her. I thought, why not? It was after eleven, and the building pretty much retired by nine o'clock p.m. We passed a pleasant thirty minutes or so watching Turner classic movies. Before she fell asleep on her settee, her slim frame weighed down by a l'envent pendant necklace, Ms. Miyake Burns pointed to the TV and whispered, The actor who plays that horse is dead now. I've read enough biographies inside to know how little interest any of this holds. I cannot fault her flagging attention. We only wish to know the story behind why a known personage is known at all, if you will, without all the preamble. Everyone comes from somewhere, which is another way of saying everyone comes from nowhere. It's just plain uninteresting, I agree. And yet, and yet, my years at the Bernays are as much a part of me as the holding pen— even if the latter has brought me this readership and infamy, and the former brought me nine consecutive life sentences. As much as I intend this final issue to be my apologia and an official accounting of events as they happened, I must also be true to my own higher calling and hope you'll excuse a detour into autobiography. I remember the smells of the Bernays. Those returned first, the ladies doused and perfumed to ward off the decrepitude. 
They really poured it on for charity galas and visits to their geriatrician, usually a Max von Zydo type with an office on park. I'd hold open a taxi door and inhale a fog of bergamot and ambergris. The scent hung in the lobby for hours, resistant to the minifan we kept behind the redwood podium. It bonded to the skin under the livery, and good luck trying to lose it with exercise or after-work beers. I wonder how much the olfactory barrage contributed to my bachelorhood. It was like carrying around a rodent drowned in patchouli oil. I'm sure I triggered many a memory of incontinent grandparents for whoever was unlucky enough to stand near me. This was all well before I'd awoken my artistic temperament, mind you, which I now know is sexual catnip. As Steve Martin said, it's all about timing. I don't think it a stretch to say the contours of my life back then fit closely to that of my job. The job was everything, you see. I preferred it that way. Did I want for entertainment? From my Bernays post, I could watch the entire world go by, and since it was Manhattan, the entire world did go by. Tourists with their slow zigzags, one in four stopping to ask for directions, junior analysts walking three abreast in iceberg blue dress shirts and tropical wool slacks, wolfing down burritos on their lunch break. With their sweaty cheeks, it looked like something being birthed backwards. Hispanic construction crews debating football and ferrying ladders and buckets, the neighborhood under constant restoration. Jamaican nannies and their charges in military-grade strollers, both of them wearing headphones, and the women. The women. It was all I could do to restrain myself from relief in the doorman's coat closet, which I only resorted to a half-dozen times, or now that I think of it, more a baker's dozen. Most often I'd look up and exhale through my mouth in a silent whistle. I'd look up and count the window AC units on the Chatsworth across the street, little silver knuckles running up the stories. I suppose what attracted me to the job is the simple truth that the livery doorman is not an individual, and this is as it should be. It was thrilling to take a nine-hour vacation from myself to become pure function inside a well-weathered apparatus. That apparatus, thankfully, came wrapped in romantic delusion. Look to the classic American films of the 1940s, and there we are. Quiet, solicitous, taking Miss Kelly's bags, Miss Hepburn's bags, a white-gloved helping hand for the post-war magnates and their wives and children. We dialed their Dr. Feelgoods through the proletariat panic of the 1970s, their fixers in the SNL crisis of the 1980s, their Eastern Bloc party girls in the go-go 1990s. The court-appointed psychiatrist later told me I should have been troubled by the thrill I derived from anonymity. I suppose for others it was more difficult to wear the costume of self-effacement, whereas I could remain stock-still at my perch for hours gazing into the middle distance like a dutiful statuary. One night, after returning from a midshift tipple at O'Malley's, I swear my head detached from my body and floated around the lobby like a balloon, without agency or direction. I consulted James. He'd put in the time. Surely he could relate. I don't recall his response exactly, but the gist was, everyone thinks they're a fake. Everyone's lying constantly. No one gets caught. The lies are too complex to determine guilt, let alone any kind of reckoning. 
Calm down and stop worrying so damn much. James then went into a short rant about the lack of reckoning in society as a whole, epitomized by the recent drug scandals at the Scripps National Spelling Bee. I stopped listening and wondered instead how he might react if I pulled my dick out of my trousers and urinated on his shoes. I experienced many of these fugitive thoughts, more so near the end of a shift. I see that bang-trimmed Mata Hurry is taking live interviews with her dash cam, one of four talking heads on MSNBC, fielding tough questions like, How are you holding up? Worse yet, her Chiron identifies her as Betsy Pankhurst, author, likely the work of her opportunistic publicist and, if you'll forgive the nitpicking, only true in the technical sense. She is a destroyer. One joined on screen by State Senator Nina Vasquez, filmmaker Frank Darabont, and Supermax architect Leonard Goodwin. I can see over Betsy's shoulder a bit of highway signage spinning outward as if in orbit. She must be rounding the Exit 70 off-ramp. I know it is self-defeating to check in on her, to hear her voice crack as she tells Joe Scarborough, My partner and I believe in love, we believe in justice, and we believe in America. This catastrophe is a total rejection of those beliefs and of those who share them. I resolve to never again mention her spirit-draining obloquy. It is at best a distraction. Despite my outsized imaginative capacity, I have no idea what Betsy will do upon her arrival. I feel lucky to be granted the chance to say goodbye, as it were, before the quick and violent end. Well, an end sure to be violent, less sure to be quick. Either way, it's preferable to how the English satirist Jonathan Swift went out. He possessed a lifelong fear of aphasia, which he paid little mind. Everyone thought he'd expire a young man slain by one of his many enemies. Swift even carried a sidearm in response to the death threats. That may have been Pope. In fact, now that I think about it, I'm sure it was Pope. Wouldn't you know it? A stroke is exactly what befell the man. It would be funny in other circumstances. For the last five years of his life, Swift was bedridden and mute. To that I say, no thank you. Swift must have known the touch of history was upon him, or rather, his story. Very few of us ever feel it, and those who do must profess a modest ignorance after the fact. Instead, we resort to cliché, we were in the zone, sinking that championship-winning shot or pulling that comrade from the flaming wreckage. The touch of history is unmistakable. It starts as a cold, scrotal grip, alarming and, at the same time, strangely pleasant. History cannot be confused with any other sensation. It travels up the urethra and pelvis, an armada of pinpricks, thousands of them, decidedly foreign but not unwelcome all whispering, you are part of something larger. Where was I? Ah, yes, the Bernays. I alternated between the second and third shifts. I had no real control over my schedule due to a lack of seniority in the union coupled with the flexibility of what the IRS would call single income no dependents. I'd clock out and change into civilian clothes in the discreet coat closet slash storage space to the right of the entrance, its walls, I remember, lined with portraits of Bernays' staff, past and present, 
dot matrix printouts of FedEx and UPS timetables and an instructional poster on the Heimlich. Whether my shift ended at 4 o'clock p.m. or midnight, my custom remained the same. Sidle up to O'Malley's on 65th, order a lion lager from the gruff barkeep, Mick or Brian or Buddy, I can't remember. I drink my beer slowly, waiting for it to warm to room temperature, as Rajat and I drank it in Trinco. On the weekends, when the house band played, a folk-inspired three-piece named Orange You Glad I Didn't Say Banana, I would forego the bar for long walks across the island, threading the cement expanse of Lincoln Center to the Hudson, as if my ingrained compass always pointed to the nearest body of water. I would say I was alone with my thoughts, but in truth, I don't believe I thought anything at all. I do remember one August night, it may have been one or two a.m., I was startled by the cracking wood sound of a horse-drawn carriage speeding down an empty Central Park West, an outsized ship-tossed din. I turned as a deranged horse marauded past me, the carriage rocking on its axle like a glass about to topple, and the carriage driver giving chase two blocks behind, then three. As the horse sped by at what I guessed was full gallop, I searched his expression for... bridled joy? Rabies-fueled exultation? The horse was, ultimately, inscrutable. And in the face of such newfound freedom, itself a form of terror, such an expression might be deemed equine courage. Yes, I deem it. Even now I long to escape this room and do nothing more than stroll the West Lawn. I would approach the WXHY Action News Team and the WBCS News Team and give a reassuring pat on the back of the cameramen, a manly pat on the back with a squeeze of the shoulder that says, we're all in this together, and also says, you're doing good work here, and also says, wow, that camera must be heavy. I would walk to the tree line and slow my pace, absorbing the details. I can imagine the leaves mottled by caterpillars, the darkness beyond shading to reveal a muddy glen strewn with fallen branches and ancient beer bottles. All that earth roiling underfoot. I would bend down with the ease of a potato farmer and run my hands through the dark loam, releasing fertile odors. I would nod approvingly, as if some test had been passed, as if I were on camera, as if I had any part in such a beautiful place. I would stand up, part the branches and step inside. It is not to be. While Diosito and his cohorts raise Taganek's cheese shop Mononcle, while the GSSR and the Appeals elevate their rival chanting, Godspeed, I wish them luck traversing the swamp of protest rhetoric, while the riot expands with inexorable progress, I will sit here and die. Or not. Just sit here and die. Jumping jacks. Keep the blood pumping. If I may take one measure of solace, it is that my death will become an extra-textual code to Betsy's book, rendering much of its power obsolete, or at the minimum incomplete, by the major news of the day. Today. My day. Wonders never cease. WXHY Action News is interviewing Warden Gertchens. The wily bastard got out after all. He looks freshly showered and shaved, his trademark turtleneck and clear plastic glasses conveying a mastery of the situation. He's the king of his castle. 
The castle may be stormed by peasants and partly a fire, but it remains his castle. He's responding to field correspondent Jay Min, something about a national tragedy and the exigent demands for building stronger china shops for ever stronger bulls, plus a spurious disquisition on Westbrook's historical dedication to safety. If you'll excuse the digression, I've heard stories from the grizzled veterans contradicting the warden's claims. There was the rash of inmate suicides in the mid-1950s, a response to the widespread use of extended solitary and abandoned only after concerns voiced by the governor's wife after her tour of the grounds. There was the rookie screw who slipped LSD into everyone's soup in 1972. The entire population lay supine for hours, unable to be roused from their trips, or, and this is decidedly apocryphal, the whispers of decommissioned landmines buried in the weed-choked knolls to the northeast and escaped a turret dreamed up by the late Warden Brown in the booming post-war years. This particular bugaboo persisted for decades, in the way such idiocy does, belying the institutional logic of Westbrook. How would a cash-strapped warden have ramrodded such an improvident use of funds? And given the odd spike in escapes from 1955 to 1959, wouldn't there be articles in the Times Union of exploding prisoners? A search of the paper's digital archives yields only a few results, mostly about communists on our board of directors. Any actual landmines would have detonated hours ago with all the trampling about by the WBCS camera team, the Fox News Live at Five crew, the appeals, the GSSR, the food trucks, and what appears to be the quinceanera of an inmate's niece or daughter. They better get their portraits in early. The forecast predicts nighttime precipitation. Even now the sky is darkening with thick scud clouds. On any other day this kind of weather would send a nerve of excitement through Westbrook. I suppose it's part of the magical thinking so common to prison life. Rising barometric pressure sets the lifers gossiping about nor'easters off the Atlantic. Everyone daydreamed about twisters obliterating screw nests, hurricanes sweeping through with a liberating menace. Hell... Even the April sun showers got us excited. Red, blue, and yellow lights are flashing brighter through the high windows. It must be the wagon circle of ambulances and fire trucks, blinking just a hair from syncopation. A strong part of me wishes it would fall into a comfortable pattern, though, yes, I know, that would defeat its purpose. But we all know we'll be here for a while. Or at least they will. I hopped up just now to get a look at the cordon. There are indeed a half-dozen fire trucks, long vehicular muscles ready for flexing. I wonder why they aren't attending to the fires in A and B blocks. Perhaps something to do with protocol or maybe insurance? There is a kind of beauty to idling in an emergency, a rejection of what's expected, I suppose. It's a minor rebellion I can certainly endorse and would argue is not so dissimilar to the entire feeling of youth. I admit to mixed feelings about Warden Gertrude's survival. I know I should not wish ill on my patron and benefactor, and yet history demands blood. Shall I be the sole martyr today? Must my body be the only one laid atop the funeral pyre of post-penal literature? I suppose what bothers me most is the lack of contrition in Warden Gertrude's voice. If he's blind to his own role in this world-shaking moment, so be it. If he looks on the storming of the Bastille as mere property damage, so be it. The holding pen is worth a riot, worth a hundred riots. This work will outlive us all. It will outlive us all and gather momentum and be taught to school children and recited at the commencement of major sports events. 
Yes, certainly it is worth my own life, on this random Tuesday, as I type with cramping fingers and a bouncing knee in the Will and Edith Rosenberg Media Center for Journalistic Excellence in the Penal Arts. Do I exaggerate? I've studied the trends. I know the troubled passage all new art faces on its path to canonization. There's a first blush of popularity, followed by a gauntlet of criticism most often directed at the fallibility of its creator. I will fare easier than most. My sins are well documented. My incarceration is itself a rubber-stamped takedown. What can the critics say about me that isn't immediately obvious? I'm not in denial of the things I've done. When I returned to my post that night at the Bernays, I did so with complete sang-froid, manning my station with professionalism. I even took care to wipe the perspiration from my forehead and the back of my neck with a handkerchief spritzed with rose water. And when Ms. Huang's son stopped by, his office at Barclays was about twenty blocks south, I greeted him with courtesy and with the subtlest genuflection. The picture cracked, as it were, when he returned to the lobby and burst from the elevator screaming into his phone, You better fucking be here when I hang up and you better fucking find out what happened to my Meemaw. The WXHY Action News interview with Warden Gertjens has cut away to footage from inside. It appears one of the appeal's smartphones made it in after all. The picture quality is quite poor, either from backlighting or the increasing amount of smoke in the flats, and quite shaky, too. The phone is being fought over with a chorus of off-screen requests. Let me send my girl a dick pic first, then you can have it. M13, I, I, I. Jamal, Jamal, turn that shit over here, get it on me. The camera swings around to Frankie holding a bleeding white guy in a headlock, the two of them splayed out like Greco-Roman wrestlers. Frankie is beaming with hard-won pride, his sparring partner's face is pocked and bruised to the hilt as if sculpted from masticated cherry pits. Frankie is slapping the man's forehead, repeating, Say it, say it, and I'll let go, say it. The camera zooms into Frankie's face. Or rather, it isn't a zoom. Something has sent the phone flying toward him. It hits Frankie square in the forehead. The picture goes dark. The phone must still function, however. Next we hear O'Bastard faces bellowing drawl. I didn't come here to make friends. I came here to win. It's unclear where in Westbrook this is taking place. I spotted the blue and white floor stripes demarcating the inmate and screw walk lanes, so they're in the central corridors, likely between C and D blocks, and the row of solitary cells at the entrance to E block. Close. It's no relief to hear O bastard face in such high spirits. This is his New Year's party. The clinking glass, collisions with strangers, old acquaintances not forgotten, a revived and abusive bonhomie. I would prefer to see anyone else break through my meager barricade. Oh, bastard face has always put me at unease. McNary once remarked, That guy took a chainsaw to his mental furniture long ago. Perhaps oh, bastard face's greatest flaw is an inability to simply rest, to be. Something I learned during a routine keep lock a few months back, March perhaps. A screw found a sharpened toothbrush. It was a day in the cell for everyone. The inspections ate up AM work detail, which begat boredom, which begat cursing out the screws because, well, everyone was bored. I decided to use the time productively and plot out future ideas for the gaps in Volume 1, Issue 10, Paradise. Colleagues in the industry recognized the necessity for long lead times, which doesn't really apply to the holding pen, but I instituted them anyway to maintain a sense of professionalism with Warden Gertjens and, truth be told, a sense of professionalism with myself. 
The policy also gave me a handy excuse with the more aggressive pictures. Sorry, would love to do a profile on your melamine board sculpture from the woodshop, but the issue's full. Two hours into Keeplock, I heard a primitive, ominous gurgle and turned to find my morning deposit rising up to greet me. As I leapt up onto my bunk, I heard cries of disgust along the galley. At least I wasn't alone in this plumbing bete noir. The puddle spread past my cell to meet its sibling coming out of O'Bastard Face's cell. His boisterous cackle identified his own toilet as our fecal estuary. He'd flushed his bedsheet. The insults shouted his way. Motherfucker, I'll kill you for this. Last time I get shit on by felon flyers. I was napping, goddammit. Only fed his laughter more. The brackish film spilled across the flats and pooled around the shallow concavity at Southgate. I learned my cell rested at the bottom of a shallow decline. Screws bounded out of the gates, undeterred by the splashing their footfall sent upward and out. From what I could hear, O Bastard Face welcomed their blows with the equanimity of a conscientious objector. He knew fighting back would result in a longer bout of solitary. As I said, O Bastard Face is the last person I would want interrupting my final and official accounting of events as they happened. And yet I must pause for a moment to marvel at how long I've been allowed to commune with you, my friends and mass confidants. It's been roughly six hours since the beginning of the riots. If we grant riots even have a beginning, I could argue we've always been rioting. And I'm feeling, knock on wood, something approaching hopeful. This could end at any moment, I know. And lest we forget, the Buddha says we are all already dead. But it hasn't ended yet, and I've so much still to share with you, with the historical record, before the blunt force trauma, before the end. And yet, this nape-hair anxiety is quite draining. I'm reminded of the evening after a second shift at the Bernays. It was midnight or 1 a.m. I was idling on the Uptown 3 platform. As the train approached, two hands grasped my shoulders from behind and pushed me forward, a white starburst filling my vision and mind, and just as quickly the hands pulled me back. I turned to see three black kids hooting and backslapping as they raced up the stairs. I laughed, too. A broken laugh like the sputter of a boat engine, drawing stares from my fellow subway riders. A broken laugh that dissolved into shaking and light pants wetting. That was merely a second of anxious doom. This is a marathon. Exhaustion has set in. Perhaps even boredom. Okay, okay. I hear you, I hear you, and I see your subtweets implying ingratitude. And though my own demise is assured and will be understood by generations of scholars as a fitting coda to my editorial project, he gave it his all, my e-block neighbors would shake their heads. The arc of time does not bend toward justice. How could it? Justice is an abstraction. These carceral commons, if you'll allow a subjective bias, is an animal place, with the thinnest veneer of civilization, a semi-transparent veneer through which I've spied the truth, through which, to borrow a phrase from my psychotropic drug-addled friends in C-Block, I've seen through the bullshit. The arc of time bends toward nothing save for time itself. Is that whistling I hear? There's a tea kettle register somewhere down the hall, though it might not be human, a pinched heating duct, perhaps, and yet I shudder at the sound of an approaching malefactor. The sound is continuous, neither rising nor descending, and I wonder, 
perhaps foolishly, if it is an ally, or if not an ally, then a nodding acquaintance, also squirreled away and riding this thing out. He wouldn't have the writing of this official accounting of events as they happened to bide his time, and may be at this moment finally reduced to the self-annihilating moth-light of his plaintive whistle. In which case? My heart goes out to you, my friend, or rather, my acquaintance. My heart goes out to you with sympathy and empathy, for I, too, would not wholly protest the day's end, nor all that is implied by it. However, and this may carry a whiff of hypocrisy, if the whistling is coming from someone around the corner, biding his time, arms akimbo, and playing what he thinks to be mind games, which, if true, I admit are more effective with each passing minute, then I do wholly protest the day's end and all that is implied by it. I am not ready. I haven't even gotten to the trial, nor the holding pen Amex card. 0.5% of purchases donated to a legal defense fund for contributors. I am not ready at all. I need more time, and yes, I acknowledge the sly wink from the universe. Time is the one commodity I've had in abundance all these Westbrook months and years. And yet, if I were to be accorded another hour, another twenty minutes, such time would be invaluable for future scholars of post-penal lit. Not to mention present ratings for the local news. I am not above requesting a distraction from my brothers-in-arms. The appeals have shown blush-inducing solidarity. Now is the time to, as they say, kick things up a notch. My brothers might engineer some kind of chaos near A Block and drive the crowds east and away from the media center. The whistlings subsided. It drew down steady and measured. Perhaps a mechanical softening or a practiced human one. Either way, downright chilling. As I said, I am not ready. With the end in sight, the holding pen may not have its own end, which is to say, by the very circumstance of its creation, this final editor's letter will be interrupted, not finished. As everyone knows, that which is unfinished is also without end, and that which is without end cannot be a work of literature. I now realize, with distress and a new valence of panic, this confession may very well upend my literary corpus, may upend it and destroy it, like a hiccup-filled eulogy. Was it better to depart in silence, to never have even started this official accounting of events as they happened? I'm sweating from the distress and the panic, which have redoubled, and not from the broken AC or the low-flying fear of death. It is the sweat of destiny, or a destiny thwarted, a stumble across the proverbial finish line and an end in personal and public ignominy. How did I not think of this before? I curse sophomore Alexis Summers and the auto-published feature, all these words I cannot recall from the digital ether. And yet, I continue. I seem to always do this, that is, to start something without a sense of the ending, a sense of where it will take me, if I may dissociate for a moment. Some people, as McNary would say, are just poor planners. Perhaps it is not so dire, now that I think on it. The inevitable blunt caesura of this final editor's letter will perfectly mirror my own blunt end, a rather unique and unrepeatable rhetorical flourish. Take that, Fritz. Not dissimilar from the hostage diary or the suicide note. I welcome the extreme pathos. Ah, I see hashtag remember the pen is trending. It fills my heart to bursting to see your links to treasured stories and poems and topical cartoons. To be honest... To continue my honesty streak, I'd forgotten about some of the earlier pieces. 
There's fan favorite Year People from Volume One, Issue Three, Badlands, which began Lewis Atwell's stellar run from the Holding Pen to Harpers to Kinfolk. One of our few science fiction pieces, considered light SF by adherents and not light sci-fi. Never anything sci-fi. It's like saying San Fran to hate Ashbury habitues. Atwell's story posits a post-Diluvian Manhattan and a new southern border of 125th Street. A city councilwoman and proud Harlemite confers with the old heads about an immigration policy to contend with the Upper East Side crowds knocking at their door, proffering Birkin bags in exchange for potable water. Did I tear up at Anita's extended dream sequence, where her nostalgia for our present commingles with lyrics from Bobby Womack's immortal Across 110th Street? I may have. I may have. Naturally, the millennial set is rallying behind Jin Ho Yu's story, Ow! which many discovered through the Best American Non-Required Reading Anthology, guest edited by Kristen Wiig. Thanks, Kristen! At the risk of offending our young readers, I confess I did not initially understand the story. I consulted with Warden Gertjens, who thought the many references to urban outfitters might flatter the company into carrying the holding pen. This was perhaps three issues before they picked us up, and when I expressed my doubts, he pulled rank and demanded its publication. Well, I'm not too proud to admit when I'm wrong, and Warden Gertjens' insight brought us a vital, underrepresented voice. Hundreds wrote to say they identified with the story's disaffected young protagonist. They, too, have pawned their roommate's jewelry for ketamine. They, too, have wandered the NYU campus for whole days. They, too, have seen the faux-vintage T-shirt in UO with the phrase Funk Soul Brother and realized they never replied to their mother's voicemails about their recently departed father. They, too, have then taken more ketamine and posted 10,000-word language poetry on Facebook. Were I to pick a favorite, an essentially impossible task, the first that comes to mind would be The Poet by César Rojas, a middleman among the Latin kings, an absolute prize-fighter among prose stylists. Who could forget his rhetorical riddles and evasions? A poet in Cartagena is to give a reading at the local university. He decides to recite his friend's verses instead, perhaps as a joke, perhaps as a test of the critics. His friend even attends the reading and never realizes the theft, as it were, even compliments him afterward over steak and red wine. The poet goes farther. He sleeps with his friend's wife, does so in such a bald-faced manner. Nobody is surprised when they are caught in flagrante delicto, except, presumably, the friend's wife. And most remarkably, the friend does nothing. He does nothing and says nothing. This enrages the poet, who follows him and yells, Why aren't you upset? Do something! The friend just smiles. Meanwhile, the critics are saying the poet has turned a corner, entered a new frontier in Colombian letters. The poet is at the height of his career and in the nadir of his life. He develops insomnia and high blood pressure. His friend's maddening equipoise is killing him, and while complaining to his nephew, the two hatch a plan to mug his friend, to catch him unawares, and savor the look of fear on his face. Naturally, they're both arrested mid-robbery, the poet ends up in jail, and his friend visits him every week. I see the upper window in the media center is stippled with rain, and visibility has dropped to a hundred feet or so. 
On the southern lawn, news crews have brought out their mobile cleek lights, forming a high corona of pale white above the dots of yellow from the appeal's flashlights and the GSSR's battery-powered fluorescence. Or perhaps it is the appeal's battery-powered fluorescence and the GSSR's flashlights. My view is streaked by the rain and an uptick in activity. Instagram shows a few portraits in close detail. Bronwyn Taylor and the Cornell PhD candidate in matching bandanas, facing the camera with tongues out and left hands curled in the universal hang loose sign. A kimchi taco from one of the food trucks, tagged hashtag best ever and hashtag food porn. The smoke rising from B block reflected upside down inside a large puddle. A bikini-clad woman on a beach exhorting the viewer to trade likes for followers. There's a whiff of petrichor in the air near the window. A welcome change from the sulfurous and dried urine scent I've grown accustomed to. I would not have guessed until this very moment how much I valued and do value last smells. The necrotic perfume of the riot has been filling the hall. I can almost see it, though that may be fatigue setting in. Still, you encounter all sorts of new odors inside. I remember Cornrow from D-Block, a quiet old-timer and Hall of Fame molester, he would shuffle the flats with an old cigar box clutched to his chest at all times. I saw him bite White Jerry's pinky finger clean off during a jovial attempt to pry it away. Nobody bothered Cornrow after that. When he finally gave up the ghost, Dr. Edwards discovered the cigar box contained tightly rolled Ziploc bags of feces. Presumably Cornrow's, though really who knows. I realize with surprise and a bit of shame that in the past six hours I have yet to get into the meat of my confession and official accounting of events as they happened. The tete-a-tetes with Warden Gertrins over paper stocks, the lost portfolio issue of prisoners' drawings and sketches. Hell, my first week in New York City, freshly bribed visa in hand, courtesy of the Hilton Hotel's advance man, true to his word, marveling at all the people, all the faces, all the loneliness. Betsy's now on Anderson Cooper 360. The low resolution of her dash cam doing nothing to obscure her beauty. Even now I must remark, despite my warring feelings about her traitorous past and traitorous present, I would not be surprised if she had stopped for a blowout before taking to the airwaves, though, if I am charitable, she has always had what women refer to as great hair. She is telling Anderson... Anderson, the story today is not about the security of our prisons, it's about the security of our borders. That old sawhorse. Now she's courting the conservatives. They buy more books, and Anderson is wearing his usual stone face, always a pro. But he's giving her extra time. This one's a live wire, and he knows it. Such a pro. He's forming a response when her feed cuts out. Now, the cell service up here is quite spotty. The screws carp about it constantly. It's one of their top three complaints after the low pay and the post-season performance of the Buffalo Bills. I'm not one for deathbed conversions. If I'm honest with myself, I'm not one for much of anything. Still, there is a frisson of karma, especially as it's followed by a piercing exclamation from the South Lawn a guttural exhalation into a megaphone like a downshifting semi or a punk band's blown-out amp. When I hopped up to the outside window to investigate the source, I could just make out a fistfight between the appeals and the GSSR, a real bench-clearing brawl. The news crews loosened the grips on their tripods to swing their cameras around, 
One cameraman ran straight into the fracas with the self-sacrificing determination of a Navy SEAL. Kudos to WXHY. They alone intuited a medium shot was best. Not too sensational, not too self-consciously framed. The rain doesn't show up on air, but it's really coming down. Everybody's doffing makeshift ponchos, save for Bronwyn Taylor. His white button-down stuck to his lean frame, the hem flapping around with the motion of his karate moves. I can't determine the school or tradition. I would have thought the Cornell PhD student would be fighting back-to-back -back with Taylor, trading quips along the lines of, Looks like shit just got real. But no. He leapt into the WXHY action news van and... Ah, I see. He's crazed with revenge. Some things you can tell by body language alone, even through the rain, even at a hundred yards. The Cornell PhD student careened through the appeals base camp, doing very little to be what Ms. Huang would call a considerate driver. I counted two bystanders and one craft services table waylaid by his recklessness. His recklessness and speed. That action news van sure has some pep. Naturally, he made a beeline for the media center. Naturally, the tower screws quickly shot out his tires. The van slowed to a crawl just outside the inner fence line, a most unenviable position. He opened the door. The screws volleyed a few light-hearted rounds at the mud. He closed the door. Then he pulled out his phone. He read something and slumped down in resignation. He never really had a chance. He must have known, as we all must know, as old Lopez said that day in the yard. I don't admit to feeling sympathy for the Cornell PhD student, perhaps just empathy. A big step forward for me, as Dr. Edwards would attest. The Cornell PhD student is boxed in, though perhaps not for long. His vehicular outburst broke the collective fever, and the two dozen state police are finally beginning their advance with, I'm proud to say, a few of the appeals in their wake. Everyone's streaming into Times Square. It's all riot shields, fog, and rainfall. Maybe a few souvenirs for the fans. Dear reader, I fear your digital entreaties, turn left, turn left, will fall on deaf ears. The state police are in the middle of the scrum, in the middle and very outnumbered. I mustn't entertain thoughts of rescue. No, it looks as though they've merely expedited my demise. The noise in the hallway's picking up including the return of that damn whistling. Looking past the computer monitor, I can just make out the first wisps of black smoke. That can't be a good sign. And yet, with this confirmation, the transition of theory into practice, one might say, outside of the Will and Edith Rosenberg Media Center for Journalistic Excellence in the Penal Arts, I find an unexpected calm about my present situation. Because me? I'm an optimist. Riots I Have Known, a novel, was written by Ryan Chapman and read by Vikas Adam. Editing and post-production by Ryan Lissy Audio. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio. Riots I Have Known, a novel, is available in print from Simon & Schuster.